comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for David and his righteousness, which we know comes from you. And Lord, we ask that we would see David as a pointer to someone greater, that we would acknowledge the excellencies of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would laud and magnify his holy name as we examine these passages, which show us a glimpse of the great redemption that we have in him. God, I pray that we would become as the dust of the earth in our own eyes, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted and shown as the only one who gives forth kindness, the only one who has given forth mercy. Lord, we ask that you would convince us of the truth of this passage and that we would have a mighty foundation on which to build our lives. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, this is a a message that is very similar to a series of messages that we did two or three years ago called Christ in the Old Testament. And in this message, we're going to look at how the story, the narrative of what takes place between David and this uh, person called Mephibosheth, uh, how it images forth Jesus Christ and the gospel to save sinners. 
before we get into the actual details of this reading of 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'm going to give us uh, some, some background information. I'm going to go through the story of what took place in, um, in all of 1 Samuel as well as 2 Samuel uh, that leads up to this point. I, I realize that many of you probably know the backstory, but most of you, well, maybe not most, but, but many of you also don't know the backstory. And so it's helpful for us to consider what takes place here in the context of who Mephibosheth is. It's not enough that you see, oh, Mephibosheth is this lame guy who's, you know, crippled in feet and not able to do much. It, it's important that you know who he is more, th more than just what he's afflicted by, because that shapes and gives a color to uh, this redemption story that David brings him into. So uh, really quickly, we're going to look at Saul's wickedness. That is this guy who was king before David. Uh, we're going to look at the wickedness that Saul exhibited in his, in his role as king, especially with consideration to how he pursued uh, David. We're going to look at Saul's son, Jonathan. If you don't know, Saul had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan, as the reading told us today, is the father of Mephibosheth. And uh, if you ever want to you know, have fun reading your Bible and practice these words, I would encourage you say the, them out loud so that when you get a little older and you have children and they ask you, what, who is this person? You don't say, well, I don't know. I've never given it much thought. So Mephibosheth is a great name. Uh, we're going to look at the death of Saul and Jonathan as a tragedy and a judgment that comes on Israel for her waywardness. Although Jonathan was righteous, he falls in the midst of a battle of evil people. We're going to look after that at what takes place to Mephibosheth, how in the midst of running away from a group of people who were trying to usurp the throne after Saul's death, Mephibosheth gets injured. We're going to look at David's desire for kindness. His motivation for what he's doing here is unlike any other king. When you hear stories of coups or, or revolts or revolutions, the first thing that people do after taking over a country is they wipe out everyone who is either a prince or a king or part of the former dynasty to solidify power. And what David does here at the very beginning of this chapter in verse 1, 2 Samuel 9, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's captivating because he is totally unlike the wickedness of Saul. David loves the Lord and loves righteousness and his desire for Mephibosheth is to show kindness to him. And this is magnified by who Mephibosheth is, how he, how he is uh, crippled, how he's uh, you know, unable to serve in the court, but also where he comes from and who he comes from. And so finally, we're going to look at the nature of his unworthiness to be present at court. And then finally, the gifts that David gives Mephibosheth will be seen as the gifts of the gospel. That is, we are given a land and we're given a table. And so this is going to culminate in our taking of the Eucharist together. And, and I would want to encourage you to think in terms of poetry, think in terms of language, look at the rhetorical beauty that's in these verses, especially with consideration to the way that Mephibosheth refers to himself and how David brings him to this table, to this place. So Samuel's sons, uh, Samuel was a prophet in Israel, they were beginning to pervert justice. 
They were beginning to go after their own ways. It says that Samuel was a righteous man, but his sons did evil in the land. And the land, if you were unaware of, before the time of Saul, before the time of Samuel, was suffering under the weight of every man and every person in Israel doing their own thing. They were doing whatever they wished. In the, at the beginning of the book of Judges, it says there was no king in Israel and people did what they pleased. And so after this, God raises up judges and then he raises up some prophets and Samuel is about to die. He's, he's in the last decade of his life and his sons are then put in a place of authority uh, in the land. And at this point, it's demonstrated that his sons are terrible people. They're idolaters, they're perverting justice, they're twisting courts, they're, they're just doing the wrong thing. And so the people of Israel are suffering under the weight of this affliction of Samuel's unrighteous sons, and they call out to God and cry for a, a king. Now, I'm convinced that the desire for a king itself is not what God is mourning in this, at this point in Israel's history. It is because Israel wants a king so that they can be like the other nations. It's not that they lacked a king because Jesus Christ is king eternal. And so it would be good if, if they wished for Yahweh to remain king. And we'll see that, that the desire for a king is not a bad desire. It's necessary that there are kings. And so Yahweh's reaction to this shows us a little bit of what's going on in the heart of Israel. They wish to be like the other nations. And Yahweh tells Samuel at this point that they have rejected me from being king over them. If they would have responded rightly to this crisis of leadership in their nation, they would have asked for Yahweh to send a king. And instead, they ask to appoint a king themselves. It's very different. Even so, Yahweh acquiesces. He relents. He, he gives in to Israel's desire to be like the other nations, even though he had chosen them to be his special, unique people, distinct from the other nations. They're beginning to, to not want that call, not want that duty as a group of people, a kingdom of priests like we talked about three weeks ago. They're, they're not wanting to be those sorts of people through whom God would shine to all the nations of the earth, drawing them to the righteousness of God. They want to be like the other nations. Yahweh tells Samuel to warn them of a great number of evils that are going to come because they are going to install an unrighteous king. And the reason we know this is the case is because all men, apart from Jesus Christ, are wicked. And therefore, apart from reconciliation to God by faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in the covenant promises of God, men are tyrants. And so Saul uh, becomes this first you know, imprint of exactly what Samuel says is going to happen. It says that Samuel warns the people saying, he's going to take your sons and force them to be in the army. And he's going to oppress them to ride on chariots and fight battles that aren't the right battles to be fighting. Before this, all of Israel was part of the army. It wasn't that there was the separate army and then, you know, a particular number of fighters and a particular number of people who stayed home. And Israel, in great numbers, attended to all the battles that she was fighting at this point. Samuel is warning them, saying he's going to take your sons and force them to be soldiers all the time. Not fighting battles when there need to be battles fought, but rather conscripted soldiers. He's, he warns them, saying he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to force them into be 
force them into be uh, being palace servants and attendants to court and things like this. He's going to take your servants, not only your children, but also your servants, and he's going to force them in and do labor, and he's going to take your land, and he's going to demand a portion of your proceeds every year. He's going to tax both your money, your land, and your income, your grain that comes in, your wine that comes in, the oil, he's going to take a tenth of. And even so, after all these warnings, Israel's like, yep, sign me up. This would be like a little box on your IRS form at the end of the year that just says, if you'd like to, you can add 10% this year. Would you like to? Do you have it in your heart? Sure. It's, it's, it's terrifying. And yet Israel's like, yep, we want it. And this shows us the depth of Israel's sin. Yahweh himself is, is king over Israel, and yet Israel wants to be like the other nations. They're not okay with simply remaining underneath Yahweh's authority. Nevertheless, they say explicitly that we may also be like the other nations. This is their desire. This is the root problem behind their desire for a king. If they would have recognized, however, as the writer of Judges does at the beginning of the book, if, if they would have recognized that they need a king rather than they want to be like the other nations, that would have been a totally different conversation. But here they want to be like other nations so they get a king rather than them realizing we need a king to prevent our waywardness, to, to help steer the country in the right way after God's law. So they give in and Saul becomes the first king to be anointed by Samuel. Samuel comes and anoints Saul. There's this wonderful story with a donkey, a group of uh, uh, donkeys that have gone missing, and Saul finds them, and Samuel encounters Saul. But as soon as this happens, as soon as Saul is set up and installed as king, he begins to turn away from Yahweh. Literally the same chapter that he's anointed, he begins to go after his own plan, his own desire. He, he gathers glory to himself, and he attempts to be sh- seen as this righteous person who is offering sacrifices to the Lord, even though the Lord, through Samuel, had told Saul to wait. And Saul begins to establish uh, battles that aren't the Lord's battles. He begins to fight these campaigns that are, that are ill-thought. At one point, he makes his soldiers fast before going into battle. How many of you have, think that's a good idea? I don't. <laughs> that, that's what we call... That's what we call pietism, trying to earn God's favor by doing religious stuff. He thinks that it'll guarantee them the victory, even though Yahweh had already promised them the victory. And so Saul shows us that he's a man who does not trust in God's promises, but rather he he wishes to establish this kingdom unto himself. This is contrasted, of course, with David, who is a man who is after God's glory. That phrase, a man after God's own heart, is always properly translated or reiterated as a man who's after God's glory. And Saul wishes to gather glory to himself, to be seen as beautiful and and a righteous king in front of the eyes of the people, to be popular, but he doesn't care what, what happens in terms of God's righteousness. At this point, Saul begins to have these battles, and and David rises up as a man. God rises David up as a man who is a warrior and a man who's righteous. He's also a worshiper. He's one who loves God. And Saul begins to be envious of David. Yahweh decides to install David as king, and he tells Samuel to anoint David as king, even though Saul is still on the throne. Now, this isn't rebellion on Samuel's part. God told him to do this. He wasn't attempting to overthrow Saul, but but he knew that Saul was headed down. 
he was going through a demise. And so David is installed. He's anointed king. If you ever think that you haven't been recognized yet and your gifts are being wasted and you're just this hidden person, consider the life of David as well as Christ and the apostles. David is king for over 17 years, and he's never recognized as king. And in fact, once once the other problems are done away with, he then has to have a series of little tiny skirmishes in which he convinces Judah that he should be king. This is, uh, this is a great story of waiting in humility. And so David waits in humility, all the while understanding Saul is still king, even though I've been anointed king, and I'm not going to take matters into my own hand so as to bring about God's timing by my own work. And David waits and rests in the humility of his righteousness. He waits for God's promise to be unveiled, all the while knowing that he really is the king and and Saul's a rebel. Saul's a tyrant who's going after his own thing. David goes on to conquer Goliath. We all know that story. If you don't know that story, come to my house. We'll have dinner. I'll tell you that story. If you've never heard David and Goliath preached as the gospel, you've only heard David and Goliath, David killed some giants you can kill giants too if that's all you've ever heard of david and goliath you're missing out on one of the best scriptural stories ever saul becomes extremely jealous of david there's this thing that happens after a particular battle the women of jerusalem come and sing this song it says saul has slain his thousands and david his ten thousands so what these these singers who come are beginning to highlight this thing that's happening at the popular level people are beginning to see david's military might and recognize that he's a good leader and he's a, he's a good person to trust and to, to follow after. Saul becomes envious of David. He sees that the people are beginning to follow after him. And Saul does what every envious, jealous person does. He becomes a murderer. Saul goes after David, seeking his life. At a few different points, there are some spears thrown. And they stick into walls. It's a, it's a great story. And Jonathan is actually at the table of Saul at one point, And Saul throws a spear at Jonathan because Jonathan was kind of hiding David. Think about that. You're going to throw a spear at the place where your son is sitting in the midst of your court, like the king's court where everything's very official. You're going to throw a spear at that point? That's murder, brothers, sisters. That's murder. Saul becomes this person who's filled with rage. He's seething with murder in his heart, and he's going after David without relenting. So Jonathan, the son of Saul, was not wicked like his father, but he was completely devoted to David. He recognized David's righteousness, and there was something in the heart of Jonathan and in the heart of David that made them what we call in the book of uh, Anne of Green Gables, bosom buddies, bosom friends. If you've never had a bosom friend, it may seem like a weird phrase, but here, Jonathan and David, it says that their souls were knit together. Now, this isn't an ungodly friendship. This is a righteous, good, strengthening relationship by which they are both encouraging each other in the things of God. And Saul and is trying to find David, and over and over again, Jonathan hides David, and he, he makes a way of escape for, for David. There's even this wonderful story where Jonathan deceives Saul by shooting an arrow either to the left or to the right, and he tells his servant boy uh, to, to go one way or the other. And beforehand, he had told David, if he goes off this way, then know that it's safe for you to return. If he goes off this other way, then take that as a sign that you need to get out of here. And at, at one point, 
Jonathan shoots this arrow, sends his servant after him. He chases down his servant. Apparently, arrows were very expensive, so you went and caught them again. Uh, And he goes and finds this arrow, and David is hiding behind a rock. And he comes to David, and Jonathan, it says that that Jonathan and David kissed each other. And if you think that's a reference to some wrong relationship between Jonathan and David, you're, you're thinking ridiculously. They're, they're greeting each other because this is their final time which they'll be together. They know that at this point, Saul's murder is so important to him that he will not stop anything else in the kingdom until David is done. He, we, they know that it's too dangerous for them to meet again. And so they, they greet each other, they kiss each other, and they weep. And it says that David wept all the more loudly. At, the, at this point in Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, Jonathan says to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, this comes up in the book of Ruth. Um, this is exactly what takes place uh, in these passages with with Ruth saying to Naomi, the Lord will decide between you and I. Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. This is the exact same sort of covenant that's happening here. Jonathan is covenanting to David. The Lord will be between us and we will show kindness to our offspring. It says, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So David and Jonathan are separated here. And this is a friendship that's that's torn apart through the murder of an evil king who's about to fall. Even so, Jonathan remains faithful to David's promise, and he doesn't disclose where David is. He doesn't give him up. And David escapes because of, Saul, of, of Jonathan's uh, uh, righteousness. So they, they covenant together in order to show kindness and friendship to their generations, that is, every child that comes forth. And it's this covenant which provides the context for the chapter that we read today. So the Philistines continue to harass Israel. If you don't know who the Philistines are, they're these group of people who live near the Israelites, and they they are pestering Israel. They would send these little groups of raiders to mess with the, the territories on the outskirts of Israel. They would come in and mess up some cities, and then they would, you know, kind of leave really quickly. And there were these raiding bands. You can think of kind of like the Vikings. And at this point, there's a battle in which Saul and Jonathan are together uh, among the soldiers. And at at the point of the battle where it gets extremely fierce, the men of Israel do not trust in God's provision, and they retreat. And at this point, Saul and Jonathan, the retreat happens so fast that they can't get out, and they're surrounded, and they're both killed. When David hears of this, he doesn't rejoice. Now think about this. You have lived year after year, for many years of your life, hiding from this one person. Not a group of people who are conspiring to kill you, but just one person who's behind it all. And he dies. I don't know about you, I would surely rejoice at the point. I would. I mean, we're talking about you're running for your life. You're fleeing to other places. You've lost your homes. Your wives are not with you. Your children are left behind. You're sleeping in caves running for your life. This person dies, and what, is, what does David do? He mourns. Second Samuel chapter 1, 11 and 12, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. The, the act of tearing clothing is the deepest mourning that the scriptures have. It's the deepest language for a soul-rending 
that the person is doing by the rending of their clothes. They're symbolizing that their life has been ripped apart. This is the bereavement of someone who loses a child. This is the bereavement of someone who encounters the sudden death of a lost one, of a loved one. David loved Saul, even though Saul was a wicked person. And he loved them, loved him in the right way. He was jealous for that office which God had appointed to him, knowing all the while that Saul should have repented, and he never did, which deepens the grief even all the more. Verse 12, and they, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. Why? Because they had fallen by the sword. That phrase is very important. If you don't remember in the law, it says that when God is judging Israel, he will cause the sword to flash against their cities. Why is the sword flashing? Well, it's because it's moving very quick, quickly. And so here they're mourning because they're falling under judgment. They're falling under the just judgment of this wicked king named Saul. And so they're mourning, they're repenting before the Lord, and they're mourning the death of these two people. And at this point, you would think that you would rejoice as if you were David. You would rejoice in the fact that the war is ended and you're now going to finally be recognized as king. It's never so simple, of course, when a king dies. There's always people who try to take the throne. And there's a, a number of different coups and uh, some revolts. There's this guy named Ishbosheth, which is another fun word to say, a fun name to say. Ishbosheth tries to seek seek out the throne, even though he wasn't anointed, and Samuel had nothing to do with him, and he he just tried to take the throne because he was one of the sons of Saul. And at this point, there is a turmoil that's unleashed in the kingdom at the at this uh, at this moment, and in this clamor for power, in this lust for power grab that all these people were doing, uh, it's very often the case that a, when a king dies, there is a time of unrest. And so Mephibosheth's servant or maid, maid servant, the, the person who was watching him while her, his father was out at war, decides we've got to get out of here. And Mephibosheth can't walk because he is uh, lame in his feet. Now, this what, what takes place is it goes beyond his own inability to walk. His feet are just at this point broken when he was, you know, a child. They, they either were formed the wrong way or they couldn't, uh, he couldn't walk on them. And his disaster that comes upon him is much worse than just having his feet messed up. Second Samuel chapter four, verse four, the first time we hear of Mephibosheth, Jonathan, the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. Now that's all it says at this point. He's simply crippled in his feet. It says that he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he, be, he fell and became lame. Now, I don't know exactly how this worked. Um, it's not easy to drop a, a five-year-old and have their legs break. So in my estimation of what took place, there was probably some sort of neural damage or he broke his pelvis and it didn't set right. There was something that happened so that Mephibosheth not only had his feet, he didn't have his feet working anymore, but he also lost the use of his legs. Now, this is taking place at five years old. This is important to remember for the context of what we're going to see take place. Now that his father had fallen and the kingdom was in a tumult, he absolutely had to flee for safety. It was very likely the case that Ishbosheth was coming to kill Mephibosheth because he wanted to consolidate power. And this is exactly what we've talked about. A king, when he dies, 
the one who comes after him attempts to consolidate power and put to death anyone who was part of the former dynasty or former kingdom in order to not have any possible rivals to the throne. This is what an unrighteous king does. He murders those who are innocent so that he can be secure in his throne. It was better at this point, and although the text does not tell this, it's probably better at this point that Mephibosheth goes and lives in relative obscurity. He is, his feet are broken, his legs are unable to move, and so he is unable to defend himself, and he's at, at this point in the history five years old. He's definitely at this point going to go away from, uh, from the kingdom. Uh, if you've never seen any military epics or heard any stories of revolution, perhaps you've heard of the Lion King. And now this is admittedly a, somewhat a childish illustration, but you may remember when Simba's father dies, where does Simba go? He goes outside the kingdom. Why? Because his uncle takes the throne. What was his uncle's name? Scar. What a great name. This is, this is what's happening here. Mephibosheth is running away. Now, at this point, the, the illustration breaks down. Mephibosheth doesn't become Simba, so to speak. But he runs away. He goes out beyond where the kingdom, you know, the kingdom is because it's unsafe for him to remain. He was too young. He would have been killed. Um, now, so that is, that's the scenario of what's going here. So it's very likely the case that this, this lame, crippled person who is a threat to another king who has to live in fear of his life, he probably goes and lives in a place that's not very popular. We don't know very much of, of the name of the city that uh, it says that he lived in, but it's, it's not exactly like Jerusalem. It's somewhere that's out of the way and, and probably pretty hidden. And even in that town, it wasn't a pro everyone probably eventually knew who he was, but it wasn't like they were announcing, Hey, if, if the other descendants of Saul need to, wipe the rest of us out, here he is, kind of thing. He's, he's hiding away. He's hiding for his life. And so this is the type of person that Mephibosheth is. It's, it's not a defect in Mephibosheth's character necessarily, but it is his circumstance. And that, that description of what's going on is very important when we can consider what Mephibosheth says about himself. David, insofar as he's not like the other kings, the kings that we talked about, he points to another king. And this is where I want you to begin to engage your memory of the story of Jesus Christ. David is showing us a simple glimpse of what Jesus Christ does. So David wishes to show mercy to those who he is covenanted to. And because of his great love for Jonathan, he at one point while he's holding court in Jerusalem, he decides to settle this matter about following up with the covenant that he's made. As we've said earlier, David is not consolidating power. He's not getting Mephibosheth into the court under false pretenses to take him out in case Mephibosheth should rise up one day and try to claim the throne. That's not what David's doing at all. David asks this question not to hunt down the last of Saul's line, but rather to show the remnant mercy. And this is completely different from all the kings of the earth. Verse 1, David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Look at this contrast. Anyone who's part of Saul's house so that I can show them kindness because of Jonathan. He's redeeming this family that had gone wayward because of the wickedness of this king. And he's desiring to remember the covenant and fulfill his oath that he gave to Jonathan. 
David remembers this covenant promise and he's going about it. And he, he not only remembers the promise and he's not only willing to fulfill it, he goes to great lengths to find any last remnant. He says to his court, is anybody left? Now, at this point, it's been a number of years since the battle where Saul and Jonathan were killed, and, and David's already become king. But as he becomes king, it doesn't, he doesn't just say, oh, well, I've got more important things to do. He remembers his covenant promise, and he seeks to fulfill it completely. This is important enough for David to be a matter of the king's court. If you are unaware, kings, when they hold court, they establish around themselves attendants. We call them courtiers. Uh, they're people who are responsible for attending to the king's wants, needs, desires, his plan for the kingdom, his plan for the land and his people. They're people who will go and run messages, uh, return, fetch people, dispatch people, um, set up particular plans, execute his will. And this court is uh, they're, they're all a group of very important people, very busy people with running the kingdom, orchestrating the events, keeping the military functioning properly, et cetera, et cetera. And this is important enough for David to make it an issue of the court. This is, this is a great matter in David's estimation. It's not a little trivial thing that he has to kind of just get to to make sure his conscience is clean. He really wants to do this. He's really eager to fulfill his covenant with Jonathan. Just as David had a place at Saul's table, David is longing for those who are the sons of Jonathan to have a place at his table. He wants this to happen. And we see this through his reactions to these kind of disheartening responses that his attendants give, considering if, is there anyone left and what's he like? David's not begrudgingly fulfilling his promise, but he eagerly desires to do so. And we know this because David's response to what they say about Mephibosheth tells it all. It says in verse 3, the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? Notice that phrase, the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Hold the phone. At this point, crippled in feet, well, you know, we don't really. We can just give him, let's give him assistance in a different city, give him a house and a few servants and keep him away from me. Crippled in both feet is not good. <laughs> That's not helpful in the king's court. This is not David's kindness alone but rather that sort of kindness which the writer says is the kindness of God. It's the kindness that accords to making one whole, making one restored, making one redeemed, enriching someone's life, restoring them into community, restoring that which was lost through the fall that Mephibosheth went through, both his fall and his ancestors' unrighteousness. This is the kindness of God. This is what it means in David's uh, heart when he says, I want to show kindness to this broken, poor child. And oh, at this point, he's now a, a much older man, probably a youth, maybe 25, 30 years old. David doesn't end the search at the point where he hears, yeah, there's this guy, but he's crippled, but rather asks the courtier or the attendant, the servant named Ziba, exactly where does he live? Go get him. And as soon as this takes place, they, he sends for them. You can sense this eager joy in David's heart, in the way that he responds to Mephibosheth. It says that David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, 
And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. Now, this is just to me, you know, getting really enriched in the story is so important because, again, this person is lame in his feet and lame in his legs, and I, I just have to imagine that even this moment is humiliating for everyone in the court. This guy can't even bow the right way. He, he has to have someone else help him down out of this chair that he was probably carried into. And he's a mess. He looks like a wreck. It's, it's absolutely disgraceful for him to even be in the king's court, let alone be the subject of this inquiry. Who is this David guy? I'm sure many of, of his attendants, though it, it's not clear at, or even mentioned from the passage at all, I'm sure many people in his court that day were slightly offended that this was even happening. Who is this ridiculous person who's crippled? Why is David concerned with this? This is Saul's gone and dead. There's no reason to fulfill this covenant. And at this point, Mephibosheth responds in such a way as we see the importance of recognizing our own sin in our lives. Look at what he says. Mephibosheth answered, he comes, David responds, and look at the exclamation point at the end of his name, Mephibosheth. This is David loving the fact that he's come. He's longing to fulfill the righteousness of the covenant that he made with with Jonathan. Mephibosheth to him is not unimportant. He says, behold, I am your servant. When one considers the court of a king and the purpose of bringing someone to court, this is a ridiculous proposition. There's someone who's lame in feet and not able to walk, crippled in feet, lame in legs. And Mephibosheth fits the exact description of someone who shouldn't be there. You can't write a better story than this. Like there's, there's any more and it would be beyond ridiculous. This is ridiculous in a sense, but any more would, it would be too much to be believable. He's exactly the right description of someone who shouldn't be in the king's presence and definitely shouldn't be part of the court. First, his presence would be a reminder to David of the continual war that Saul made against his life. That would be like taking someone and putting a bunch of Nazi symbols in front of someone who had survived the horrors of, of Nazi Germany. It'd be like reminding them presently of, of these people who helped out the Nazis, or at least the, were the children of the Nazis. That's how offensive it would be to have this person if David's responding naturally, but he's not responding naturally. He's showing the grace of God in this moment. It would be like reminding someone who had fled from another country uh, that was in the midst of war and, and bringing the son of the president and having him stay in his, in his business or be part of his household. That's how offensive this reminder could be to David, although David chooses to not let it be not only that, he has absolutely nothing to offer David in terms of service. Absolutely nothing. Brothers and sisters, this is not a trivial point. David has courtiers around him. He has set up a court in order that they would attend to his needs and run the country on his behalf, execute his will. And Mephibosheth has absolutely nothing to bring to the table. First of all, he was raised at a young age without his father away from the palace completely untrained in any military discipline or knowledge of running the country. You think of other people like Joseph, other stories like Daniel. These are young men, princes who are trained up in knowledge. Mephibosheth had to run away from the palace at five. Not only that, he's crippled in feet and lame in leg, and he cannot do any sort of military uh, 
advancement. He can't go out with them to war. He would be an, an obligation and a debt in any uh, diplomatic situation. He, he's just the wrong person to bring. Think about if you've ever seen uh, a movie like The King's Speech or, or West Wing is a great one. Where do, where do a lot of times presidents and kings like to do their thinking? They go on walks. You can think of those wonderful scenes in West Wing where the camera is just following them down one hall or the other. If you've not seen West Wing, you, you, you owe it to yourself to watch maybe at least half an episode. But, uh, but you know, if David wanted to just reflect on the day, he couldn't even have Mibosheth come with him on a simple stroll through the palace complex. This is how worthless Mephibosheth is in terms of serving David. And yet David doesn't dismiss him. Mephibosheth knows his lowly estate. He doesn't, he doesn't downplay this. And I think it's important that we do not try to tame the scriptures, but rather we submit to the knowledge that the scriptures give us. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Amazing. That's, that's beautiful self-understanding. That's the sort of self-understanding that God loves to bless. It says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go around thinking lowly of yourself for the sake of thinking lowly, but rather when we see how great David is as this king and how important the duties of the court are and who Mephibosheth is both on his ancestry and his physical condition, Mephibosheth takes stock of his own life. Why do you have regard for me? This is what the psalmist says when he says, who is man that you even consider him at all? You are the God who made the heavens and, and the earth and everything. Who is man that you are mindful of him? This is the very same sort of phrase. David doesn't rebuke him for his self-assessment as a dead dog. It's not like David shows up at, at this moment and says, well, Mephibosheth, it's actually the case that you're a, you know, an image bearer of God and you're, you're worthy of dignity and all this in and of yourself. It's not as if David just tried to say, well, Mephibosheth, you just need to think positively and you know, don't acknowledge your problems, but rather just you're going to have a good day and you got to tell yourself that in the morning. That's not at all what's going on. And I think it's a disservice and a distraction to do so. I think it's I think it's wrong to say to Mephibosheth, "Well, actually, Mephibosheth, you're pretty cool." It's it's completely wrong. the The number one reason is David doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even play that game. And secondly, it's dishonest. It's completely dishonest. It's in, it's dishonest to our experience as people, and this is kind of a wonderful truth, although it's, you know, let's wax poetic for a second here. It's one of the most human experiences to feel subhuman. Think about all the sin that's happened in your life or the lives of people that you've known who have encountered some sort of tragedy or moral failure, even either on their part or someone else's. It's an extremely common experience for humans to feel less than worthy to even be a human. And that's Mephibosheth's self-understanding here. Everyone has felt loved, unloved and unlovable, pointless and without a purpose. You've perhaps felt this. I know I've felt this at moments throughout my life. And Mephibosheth here is being honest with who he is. And yet, even so, David wants him at the table. 
Now this, what what's about to take place, what we're about to see moves me to tears. So for your sake, I hope I can compose myself, but it's okay if you want to cry. I don't think you're alive if you aren't moved by this story, because what's about to take place, especially knowing the backstory of Mephibosheth, the reason we've done all this work of context, talking about the kings and judges and Samuel and the war and the Philistines, doing all that work is just to see who Mephibosheth is so that when David offers him this gift, it's all the more beautiful. The justice which David displays restores that which was taken from Mephibosheth. It would have been Mephibosheth's place to be at the table of the king. Second Samuel 9, 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, the reason he's saying Saul, your father, is because they understand that fatherhood is more than just a simple, you know, Jonathan is Mephibosheth's father. In some way, Saul is also the ancestor of Mephibosheth, and it would have been Mephibosheth's place to be at the table. David restores the land that Saul had and lost because of his wickedness. Saul lost the kingdom because of his unrighteous life, and Mephibosheth had to pay for that. It would have been the case that Mephibosheth, this broken person in body, would have at least lived in the palace and would have had some land and some servants. Instead, he goes and lives and becomes destitute. He not only restored the land, but he also restored to Mephibosheth the place at the table, which was his due uh, deserves as the grandson of, of a king. And David doesn't just provide a land and a table, but also a heritage and a destiny, a future. He gives him servants. Remember, Mephibosheth is crippled. What good is land? Nine, verse 9, David said to, to Ziba, Saul's servant, all that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce. Now, it's not in my opinion that what David does here is wrong because the scriptures doesn't, they don't say that it's wrong. And this, this position of service of the royal servant is actually a very good position. This, this position which Ziba and his children attain to are full-time occupation with a wonderful place in the palace complex. Now that to me, what do the scriptures say? I'd rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than a king among fools. Hallelujah. Ziba's got a good job here. Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall, shall always eat at my table. Now why does Mephibosheth have land? Well, Mephibosheth also has some children at this point. He had somehow gotten married and had some kids, and it says that you know, Micah was one his, was his son. And so David doesn't just restore land and a place at the table, but also servants and a heritage and provides for these servants who lost their position because of Saul's unrighteousness. So he's not restoring just Mephibosheth, but also Mephibosheth's line and Ziba and Ziba's line. David established establishes Mephibosheth's land and provides laborers for the future so that he would have food for his son. In verse 11, we see the greatest example of grace probably in the whole book of 2 Samuel. This to me is amazing. I actually think that at this point, the King James renders it. I usually don't like to dissect between translations. I like to usually stay within one. But in the King James, it says that David is the one quoting this last phrase in this verse. But here, it's just the writer's assessment of what's going on. I'm not sure which is right. I'm not a student of Hebrew yet. Uh, but it's amazing whoever said it. 
because it's the word of God. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Man, that's that's too much. That that's too that that is grace, which is breathtaking, awe-inspiring. And if you really consider who Mephibosheth is, it's too much. David is too lavish. It's too good. It's too good to be true. It's beyond anything that Mephibosheth could have ever imagined was going to happen. He's not only welcome back at the table, but he's treated like one of the king's sons. This dead dog of a person who has no goodness in himself, nothing to bring in the service of David, and yet David installs him at the table forever. It's scandalous, breathtaking grace. David's grace that shows that he shows to Mephibosheth is just the tip of the iceberg of what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are Mephibosheth. I am Mephibosheth. One of my favorite places in the Gospels is when there's this person who is named Bartimaeus. He's sitting by the, the sidewalk, and, and Jesus is walking to the temple at one point. And this blind beggar who's tattered and dirty and smelly and poor, he cries out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Don't pass me by. That's this kind of grace. That's grace which leaves you breathless, which takes away every objection. And we're going to see, I'm not sure if we're going to look at it next week, but we'll see what happens to Mephibosheth. The great love which David shows to him bears fruit. This isn't the last time we hear of him, and there's actually a wonderful situation where we, where we see the outworkings of this sort of grace, this manner of grace. But brothers and sisters, this is what has happened to us in the gospel. God has looked upon people who were dirty and children of the enemy, and he's, consent, he's condescended to send his son to pay a penalty which we deserved. The grace that we've seen in Christ goes way beyond David, and yet the scriptures give us this story so that we would, at, at least at an emotional level, be able to even relate to what's happened to us through Jesus Christ. This is wonderful. Christ offers us peace when we are the children of the arch enemy. And as far as a righteous heritage goes, all that we have to call our ancestors is the, re the rebel Adam. We don't even have a righteous father like Jonathan to even consider in the line of, of the settling of accounts. David shows mercy to Mephibosheth because of Jonathan, not because of Saul. And all we have in our account are, are generations of men above us, men and women above us, families above us, who have run away from God. That's even beyond what David does. Christ eagerly calls for us, and he makes a diligent search to find those who are sinners. Mephibosheth is called to the court by David. David calls and says, is anybody left? And Christ himself comes, and he seeks out a mankind, a, a, a people who have been running from him to the ends of the earth. And not only that, he forms a church and invests them with the spirit of God and the message of the gospel, his very word, which is the power of, uh, unto salvation to go to the ends of the earth, to go to every place where people are going and to give them this free offer of repentance and reconciliation through the name of Jesus. This is amazing. He sets those who are lowly in a place of honor and gives us a future and life in the community of the redeemed. 
he not only restores us, but he sets us at table, not only just to eat, but to also be in his court. He causes us to have security in the future, knowing that we are in his care and under his watchful eye. More than just having some servants attend to us, much better is the fact that you are the apple of the Father's eye now because of what Christ has done. And far greater than David, he heals broken feet and causes the lame man to jump up with shouts of joy. This is who Jesus Christ is, much greater than David. And this is what we've been given in the gospel, as if it could be any better now, if, if this wasn't good enough, if Mephibosheth was just allowed to be at the table, that would have been fine. But he's called one of the king's sons. And brothers and sisters, it's about to go over the top. This is going to burst all of your theological bubbles. Because what we see Jesus Christ promise to those who stay awake and are awake when his master comes, which I believe is not talking about the second coming, but rather every moment of every day. Those who are attendant to, awake for the moving of Jesus Christ is beyond anything you could have ever asked for. Luke 12, 37, blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at his table and he will come and serve them. What, what more could we want? We're at the table where we don't belong. We're in the court where we have no place to be. We're invited to be in God's presence when we can't offer him anything. And beyond all that, he's the one who comes and serves me. It can't be. And yet, if we're honest, we know that the Spirit bears witness in ourselves that this is true beyond every hope that we could have ever asked for, this grace is undone. It, it, it's undoing. It's beyond explanation. It's really even beyond apprehension. We can't even fully comprehend what's going on here. And yet we know it's what Christ calls us to, to be members of his table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful grace. We ask you, Lord, that you would forgive us in any way, if we have offended your spirit of grace, we ask, Lord, that we would never be like Saul, losing the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you've given us as a, a seal of our down payment, like Saul drove away the spirit through his unrighteousness. God, we ask that we would be like Mephibosheth, that we would be happy to, in our own eyes, see ourselves as dead dogs if this is what you're calling us to. Lord, I, I thank you that you have concealed this wonderful mystery, and, and yet at the same time you've revealed it through Jesus Christ, through what has already come about. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from false unworthiness, that we would truly see ourselves as you see us now in Christ. Lord, at the same time, I, I ask that you would move on people who are not trusting in your son right now, that you would that you would convince them of the truth of this story as it relates to the gospel, that you would remove every obstacle, every hindrance which prevents us from believing. God, give us grace to believe. Give us faith to know and to trust that your word is true and that, God, you do not lie. Lord, we thank you for the free offer of grace through Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that 
just as it was for Mephibosheth, that this sort of grace would be our very food. It would be the fuel by which we seek to live before you. God, I pray that it would be sweet for us and it would create in us a sense of joy, knowing that we have a place at your table that's completely undeserved. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.